people are doing streaming, but the idea that we're going to only stream everything and there's no batch jobs, I don't know if that's that's true for organizations or not. That's Dustin Vinoy, a longtime friend of mine and former colleague who now is doing consulting in the big data space, focusing on Apache Spark. Now, he has a long tenured career with Spark and is kind of become a guru in the space, and he's teaching it and blogging about it and everything. So... Today, I'm going to talk to him about why you should learn Apache Spark. We'll get into how it works and exactly what you can do with it. But of course, before we do that, please like, share, subscribe, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice, and let everyone know out there that this is something that should be heard. So without further ado, here is Dustin Van Noy. Welcome to the show, the podcast that we're doing here about data stuff. And so the first thing I wanted to get into was kind of what you're up to now because, you know, you started, you've been working in data for a long time. Like what was the first? 15 years. Yeah. yeah, What was the first data thing platform you were working on? Yeah. So um, I actually, well, technically I started working on databases primarily like the last couple years of college. I got an internship, took a lot of project classes and I was like, oh, I'll build the database. I'll design the database. And that's kind of how I found my my path accidentally because I liked databases better than writing a lot of Java code. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when I was graduating, I uh, interviewed for a couple of roles at this consulting firm out of Chicago, and they hired me to to be a a business intelligence developer, consultant, Uh something like that. Uh So I was like, okay, uh, what's that mean? They told me uh, basically what it means in today's term is data analyst slash data warehouse developer slash data engineer. Not really data scientist like, like advanced modeling, but everything, self-service reporting, all of that kind of stuff. And so mm-hmm. the probably the first couple projects I worked on were using an ETL tool that's a lot like um, a lot like Microsoft SSIS. It was called a Business Objects Data Integrator, I think. Yeah, a lot like I Informatica, remember that. like you drag and drop, you yeah. design everything with like a UI, and then you write a bit of SQL code, maybe write a few scripts here and there, but mostly you're using this tool to build your ETL. And so that's yeah. how I built several data warehouses in the beginning. And and with Data Integrator, you would build a database or you would build a business objects universe or what, whatever it so was called? So there was the universe designer, which is one okay. of my favorite tool names ever. The universe designer would go and build universes for business objects. Uh-huh. And so I'd go home and tell my wife, yeah, I'm <laughs> teaching people how to design universes. And she was like, yeah. you're pretty impressive. All right. So, <laughs> um, you get staked tonight. So there, <laughs> there was the side where you're building the universe, business objects universe, which is like a semantic layer. You're defining right. all these business names and calculations that then translate to your database layer. Uh, and then data integrator was it was straight up ETL okay. development so and, just taking and data scheduling from somewhere, and, and all of that. Yeah, taking data from extract, transform, and load. Right. So doing yep. taking data from one or multiple places, doing some changes to it, updates, yep. clean, you know, reformatting, whatever, and then putting it somewhere else. Yep. Exactly. Right into another database that then anyone could query. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of neat because you know I think. I don't know if it was if it's still a theme, but there was definitely a, a, for many years the theme of like, oh yeah, cool, give us all your data, and then we'll give you these tools to work with it. But no other tool can work with the thing we make, right? Kind of yeah. like like a business objects <laughs> universe. No no other tool can touch that. Right. You know the thing was that the thing where I, I think I built some stuff in that with a client years ago where. It was kind of neat where, like, if you clicked, like, if you were trying to look at sales or profit or some measure, 
you could drag it on to your report builder. I forget what the, what was the report? Just business topics reports? Uh, uh, web intelligence was the okay. web-based one. That was pretty popular. Crystal reports was part of business uh, oh, okay. business objects at the time too. It was very, uh, it was less friendly. But web yeah. intelligence was like. Webby, um, they yeah, called it. Webby, yeah. exactly. And, and, and you would drag something on or whatever, try to get some number. Mm -hmm. And then it would show you only the dimensions or things that you could use to analyze it, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and like that was your universe designing. So, mm -hmm. so if, if there was some sort of like, oh, I dragged this field on and then these other 10 fields don't relate to it whatsoever, yeah. there's no join condition or whatever, mm -hmm. then you can't use them. Exactly. I always thought that was kind of neat, you it, know, because it kind of yeah. helps people. Uh, I mean, maybe it was frustrating probably on the user end, like, why can't I drag it on there? And you're like, well, there's probably a good reason, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I was looking for a while for a, a tool that's like the Business Objects Universe, but is portable for pretty much any platform. And it wasn't yeah. really there. I still don't think I found anything that's that's nearly as powerful and can be used in a lot of different places. So mm -hmm. uh, it was really neat because you could build it really simple. You could build a simple universe, which is basically like a, a data mart within a data warehouse. So basic idea, you have your fact table in the middle, a bunch of dimensions that join to it, very simple, hard to mess up. Yeah, uh, and so training people on that wasn't that bad. Like, Drag mar this marketing on, analysts could kind of pick that up and make changes pretty easily. We had a lot of success with that. When it came to, we've got a transaction table, and then we've got our daily snapshot, and then we've got the yeah. aggregate tables because usually you're hitting a database live um, yeah. with with business objects. Um, that's where kind of the data modeling skills came in, and the yeah, setting up the context, I think, yeah. is what it was called back then to Man. avoid user error, which I, I, led to was, user confusion, of course, but it was pretty cool. It was, I mean, I think that was a good model. It was just too yeah. slow, right? It just took too long to make these things. So, I mean, I mean wh using, why isn't this super popular now? Or maybe yeah, it is, and we're just right. not seeing it. So what always happened, which which I think was the problem, it's a, problem, a, a, theme, a theme in data warehousing back then, especially 10, 15 years ago, was when you wanted a new field added or a new calculation that everyone could use, you called the business objects developer designer guy. And that was me at some companies. Yeah. And I was there a couple days a week as a consultant and there was a manager that got first dibs on anything I did and then there were other people's requests. And so we had this list of stuff I was supposed to do and I'd get there, do as much as I can. Sometimes it was you know, five minutes and sometimes it's like, well, it's gonna take a couple days to get right because we yeah. have to. One reason or another, it was going to take a while. Right. And so right. you have a backlog of stuff and people are sitting there waiting for their calculation, which is like, I just want to divide this by this. I'm right. like, cool, but it's in right. a database. It's not as easy as it sounds. We can make it happen, but yeah. you have to wait a couple of weeks until it's the top priority. And so, that, so was the, that was the challenge. So then Tableau comes along and just says, forget all you guys. We're going to let users do whatever they want. And like, <laughs> it's it's... For you, I mean, I, I really think that the, what you described, that situation where users have this frustration of not not getting their requests yeah. uh, fulfilled in a timely manner, led to self-service analytics. Because now, yeah. and and I don't know, like it's it's probably good and bad, right? Great, you can go come up with any kind of thing you want, yeah. but also you come up with some really dumb stuff that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That you need a, a person that understands data warehousing or you know business intelligence to help you with. Yeah, I encourage people on the on the data side and the analytics side, give give analysts, and that could be like an analyst that's super technical and an analyst that's barely learning Tableau or whatever tool it is. Give them access to go and build their own stuff, access the data, do things with it. And the thing I always say is it's going to get chaotic. It's going to get wild. <laughs> yeah. People are going to, depending on the tool, people are going to join a couple of tables together in a bad way. And so you need to be able to like monitor that and audit that. Yeah. Uh, 
we, we've talked in the past, you need to develop some sort of certification process or reconciliation process for the most important reports that like the C level is going to go to their meeting right, and right. yell at each other if they have different numbers. Like you have to figure out some processes for the really important stuff, but being, giving them some access to a database where if they mess it up, it's okay. We have some tools to audit it. We can kill their query and tell them bad, bad luck. You yeah. uh, wrote a bad query, you're not getting <laughs> it, or you just happen to run your important query at the time that this or, really important query is running, and so you got yeah. you got canceled basically. And so that that's just part of it, and it takes a lot of effort to. You don't really make your job that much easier by going to the self service model, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You change what you do. You're now a, even if you're internal, you're now a consultant teaching people how to use Tableau, how to understand the database they're right. hitting. Right. And um, but now they have a lot of freedom to do their job instead of you being really busy doing your job, and they're just sitting there waiting on you. Yeah. Getting, that's probably why. Angry. Yeah, that's probably why. I mean, I'm, you know, the whole self-service model because you have Tableau and Power BI, and I remember MicroStrategy was working on a thing. Like all the all the big mm -hmm. kind of analytics providers have some self-service analytics thing now, right? Yeah. yeah. So okay, so so that's how you started your career right, right. in a very traditional uh, sense in terms mm -hmm. of what business intelligence was. Then you came out here to San Diego. We did a lot of different things, still kind of in that same vein, right? We built yeah. Kimball data warehouses, used Microsoft tools, and then mm -hmm. Pluralsight. Um, Pluralsight is probably where it started to, you're, you're, like you kind of broke out of that that yeah. data warehouse database type world into, I mean, big data, data stuff, right? Big data and data engineering, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so. so what was that transition like? Like how, you know, because, and, and what was it that you were doing that was so different at Pluralsight? Right. So I'll talk, First, the, the, I sort of started the transition when I was um, I was doing the more traditional Microsoft data warehousing work, and I kind of got the chance to, to lead the team and then um, be director. And somewhere in that leading the team, being director of the team uh, transition, I was starting to think about, okay, what do, what do we need next here at this organization? And um, we could get by pretty well with SQL Server. Like, it's, it's powerful. There's a lot of good capabilities there. But we, I started looking into big data, Hadoop, Mm -hmm. um, Vertica, systems like that. We can talk about those more later if you like. But I started looking into those and learning how to do MapReduce in Hadoop, how to write Python code with or without you know, a system like Hadoop behind it. And I started learning that stuff on the side because I thought it might be important here. I might need to train up this team to do it or bring it in even for just, a, even if it's just a couple of use cases, we might need to do this. Mm -hmm. So I started learning that and then the opportunity over at Pluralsight came up. And once we got there, it was sort of a, well, what, let's not start start a brand new thing by building what we did, what, four, four years prior we'd started yeah. that. Instead of building the same thing, let's build something that's more modern, but still fits where they're at as an organization. And so we brought in the brought in Python for custom ETL instead of using an ETL tool like SSIS. We use BigQuery, which can scale to large amounts of data, it just has to be structured, mm -hmm. and started thinking about what else, what else we do next, and a lot of that happened, what, within a year or two of working at Pluralsight, yeah. we started. Even so, so, data. so, yeah. So, so we came in um, with this idea of like, no, no, no. This is a modern tech company yeah. that hopes to scale to Netflix size or something. Yeah. So we have to build tools and systems that that will support that, right? Yeah. So, so that's where you got kind of you know got your feet wet with big data, mm -hmm. um, even though we didn't really have large data. You know, I mean, we kind of did. Yeah. But it yeah. wasn't like you know what you think of a Google or somebody like that. Like yeah. nowhere even near that. So then. So then, so then, you know, fast forward now, you're doing consulting in this space? Like, what exactly kind of work yeah. are you doing now? 
So uh, we got into using Apache Spark and uh, Kafka for streaming uh, at, at Pluralsight and did a lot with that. Uh, we did a lot of other things too, but Apache Spark and, and Kafka became pretty big pieces of what I did there the last year and a half I was there. And um, in between Pluralsight and consulting, I went and worked with Intuit and got to work on basically a very specific use case, Spark streaming uh, within a big organization where Kafka is managed by another team. Like a lot of the, the op stuff was managed for me, but I got to just sit there and develop Spark streaming jobs, figure out the mon monitoring, all of that over in AWS uh, mm -hmm. cloud. And then I've transitioned into consulting mostly with Azure Cloud, but similar concepts, doing a lot of Apache Spark with Databricks. Mm -hmm. And uh, really what I do is typically jump into, um, I have two, two modes of working. One is that I'll do like little advising uh, stints where I'm kind of a couple meetings a week just answering questions. Maybe I'll go do some research on a somewhat tough problem with Apache Spark. Usually it's with streaming mm -hmm. uh, so far. And I'll kind of help out in that way. And then, you know, then the rest of my time, a lot of my time is part of an implementation team building out a data platform that is using Databricks for most of it. And so right. we're, we're using Azure, Azure as a whole, um, but then Azure Databricks is kind of the driver for the, for the data pipelines we're building. Right. So, so in the big data world, you have structured, unstructured data. You have all kinds of different ways that that data comes in, like streaming or batch jobs. Mm -hmm. it, do, do, do people really do actual streaming, or is it always just micro-batching? Has micro-batching so. won this debate? <laughs> I believe, uh, here, uh, here's, here's usually like the secret that I don't say day one okay. if I'm working with a new client, is um, people are doing streaming, but the idea that we're going to only stream everything and there's no batch jobs, I don't know if that's, that's true for organizations or not. It uh -huh. very well might be. It's it's possible, but I think even if you're using Kafka, which is kind of a, the, the heart of data streaming for data engineers like me, even if you're using Kafka, like you would still probably have some things that read from Kafka every five minutes, every hour. Yeah. Maybe that's, a, that's not even my, a micro batch. That's true batch. It's just yeah. not once a day, which was kind of when I started. It, everything was once a day or once a week if, it, if you had to. Now it's like, yeah, once an hour is not too bad. No big deal. Um, even every five minutes, it's it's kind of somewhere in between streaming and batch at that point. And mm -hmm. so for me, the work I do is usually spark streaming, which um, you can do in continuous mode. For me, it's always micro batch mode. Uh, but there are certainly real stream processing that is uh, event based and it's just kind of a different model than the micro batch model. I, I think uh, the, the, the thing is, if you read what a lot of people are you know, posting out there about streaming, they're gonna make it sound like, yes, just go streaming, no batch anymore. None of that stuff we had to deal with in the past. I don't think that's real at very many organizations. Mm. And a lot of times I think the people that are, that are sharing that work for organizations where they still have all this legacy batch stuff. So to them, no, we're not doing that anymore, but it's still there kind of helping drive the machine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not what they focus on because it's already always been there you know, in their mind. It's always been there. It's, it's just legacy stuff now. Mm. Um, so yeah, I find that like some amount of maintenance jobs, some amount of batch jobs tend to be in the mix. But you can do a lot of stuff purely with, with streaming and a micro, micro batch framework yeah. to be more specific yeah, and, on and your And what would be the frequency of a micro batch? How Every quick? One, one or two seconds. Okay, right. Maybe, maybe quicker, maybe quicker, now, but yeah. I, I wonder if someone like, uh, like a social media platform like Twitter actually does real streaming or uh, micro batching. Because I know I've seen presentations mm. where they actually looked at like, you know, using an algorithm to, come, to figure out like how addition works and change how addition actually works in the software 
to where if someone likes a tweet, yeah. it can update it instantly. But I don't know if that's... Yeah, I, don't, I, I still have a sense that it's actually batching because if you see people that are extremely popular online, they, they post something and it gets a lot of retweets and likes. It's not actually like like a spinning dial, which is what it probably would be if it were truly event-based. Mm. It's more like, you know, it, it'll be updating seemingly constantly, but it's not updating in single increments. It's updating in, you know, uh, 10, 5, 10, you know, 20 mm. likes or something like that. It's an interesting question. So I, I've, I've had some discussion with architects where we were talking about more my, my side of the data engineering and kind of feeding into data science and, and prediction type stuff. And we're, I was like, does this data need to be real time? He said, well, real time is like 40 milliseconds, or maybe it was 100 milliseconds. Like, right. it's okay. tiny There in is his a mind. definition. And, well, th yeah. this was one architect. But in his mind, that's like tiny. I'm like, okay, we're not going to do that. Um, do we need to do it in one second? Do we need to do it in one minute? And ultimately for that, there's a lot of pieces. There's even some lookups you need to do. And so we're kind of like, right. we want the answer within a minute. Like, so we probably can get it in a few seconds, but we want the answer within a minute. And so having Spark running with maybe you have a trigger of one second or something, that, that's pretty small window, really. For a human, one second right. is real time, I think. Right. For web, if you're refreshing a web page, it's slightly different. But if you're like, if you just submitted that tweet and you're waiting for the notifications or whatever, one second's pretty dang quick. Um, but there's probably a lot of pieces in play besides the stream processing anyway. Correct, yeah, to even do, I think we did some hackathon type project like this, to get a website to actually update in real time, uses like uh, uh, sockets and all like Node.js and like, yeah. so just because the data is flowing in in real time doesn't actually mean that your website's gonna be able yeah. to handle it, right? So, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, different latency kind of checkpoints, I guess, right? Yeah. So. So we're, get, we're getting deep into the weeds, and I love that because, I, I, you know, I'm just curious because you're in the field doing this day in and day out. I'm a data dinosaur, right, that used to do these things and likes to talk about them. But just break it down for me. So um, we have data in a, a data uh, base. We'll call use that term loosely okay. as like a data lake or something, mm. whatever it is, Hadoop or Vertica or SQL Server. Um, wh what does, like, what is Spark? And, yeah. and, and how does it actually work in, in, in this sense of like what it provides me? Like what does it do? Why, yeah. would, I, why would I want to use it and, and, and what is it? So here's, I'll go with the more techno the specific use cases I've seen. And so one example I've seen maybe a few times in the past is there's a data scientist that works with Python using the pandas library to do data processing. You could really do it with you know, pure Python out of the box too, but using Python to do data processing, which is probably gonna drive some sort of prediction uh, and they come to me and say, hey, I am running this thing on my machine and it works okay, it's kind of slow, and then I need to throw you know, a gig of data at it to really get the job done and I can't do that. Or maybe it's 10 gigs, maybe it's more than that, right? And so at that point we go, okay, a solution to, hey, I'm having trouble scaling this thing on one machine, whether it's my laptop or a virtual machine or a server, having trouble scaling this on one machine is to throw more machines at it, to do distributed computing. And so that's what Apache Spark really enables. It takes a fairly simple API. Uh, once you get used to it, I think it's a pretty simple API to work with for data processing. It uh, makes you do, it allows you to do clustered computing, distributed computing without thinking about it. You're programming, you know, I wanna do this to the data, then this to the data, you submit the job. It could be running on one machine or 100 machines and it doesn't really change your code. Maybe a couple configurations, that's it. The rest of it's handled by Spark. Right, so it's a nice way to scale your uh, data analytics, data science uh, workflows. 
Yeah. Right now, now how do you uh, so so Spark itself? Okay, so that's the gist of why I would use it. Right mm -hmm. now, Spark has a lot of different components. Yeah. Right. So so what what are those components? What you know do they do? Yeah. Um, do when when you like if I'm a CIO or CDO and I say yeah. You know, hey, uh, Databricks, yeah, give me Spark, cool. <laughs> Send it over, you know, in an Amazon package, however it gets here. It shows up at my door, like, what do I get? Do I get all the things always? Like, like how, break that yeah. down. Like, what are the components and why do you use them and all yeah. that? So Databricks versus open source Apache Spark are a bit different. You want me to talk okay. about open source at first? Well, well yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so what is the difference? What is yeah. Databricks? You know, yeah. and, and so, what is the difference? So let's talk open source Apache Spark has... Uh, I want to say about four different modules to it at this point. Sorry, I shouldn't throw a specific number out there. Sure. But, um, a so few modules. you've got like Spark Core, which is sort of how it started. It uses this special data store called RDD, Resilient Distributed Data Store. You don't have to memorize or data set. You don't have to memorize that. It's not important, but when you see RDD, it means this type of data set that's specific to Spark. So that's core. And you end up there when things get hard in the other modules at this point. So the module that most of us work with, the part of the library most of us work with, as data engineers at least, is Spark SQL. And that doesn't mean that you're just going to write SQL language that looks like hitting a database, select star from whatever. You can do that. A lot of times Spark SQL means that I'm using the data frames. And data frames, if you've worked with R, if you've worked with Pandas, which are popular data, pro data processing libraries, uh, it's the same concept. It's, it's kind of like a table in memory, mm -hmm. a little bit more complex, but kind of like a table in memory, kind of like a spreadsheet in memory, right? You have your data there, and you can do transformations and select selections and filters on it. And so that's Spark SQL, kind of the data frame way of working with Spark. Uh, then there's Spark uh, ML. I believe it's called ML right now. It it's used to be MLlib. I think now we're on ML. I don't use sure. it every day, so sure. I forget. Uh, that's for machine learning. And so if you want to actually do your training of models and things like that within Apache Spark, you would probably be using Spark ML, or there, you know, there's quite a few add-on libraries and things you could look at. And then I think there might be one or two more, but I'm not sure what's sure. popular. But Those are the ones that I think you want to know about. Spark SQL is probably where you start. Mm -hmm. uh, Spark ML if you're trying to do uh, models. And then if you're having trouble doing something with data frames and Stack Overflow says, hey, you're going to need to use an RDD and do a map on it, then you're, you're going to end up in Spark Core whether you kind of realize it or not. Oh, mm -hmm. I forgot to mention, there is Spark Streaming Module. Okay. So there's Spark streaming, and then there's Spark SQL streaming. And SQL streaming is probably the place to start right now. But every once in a while, you still might need to go back to the more, um, <laughs> the, the, I don't know about legacy. Robust? Legacy may be the wrong word, oh. but kind of the original streaming is Spark streaming module. Got it. Got it. OK, and that's kind of Apache Spark. Yeah, which is, that's Apache Spark. So if anyone doesn't know, Apache is like this big software, open source software foundation and mm -hmm. Spark, but by, by calling it Apache Spark, you're saying it's a top level project, right? It's yeah. like a project that's supported, there's a big community behind it, yeah. it's open source, you can download the code it's, it's, and modify it and create your own modules or whatever, right? You can extend it, yeah, it's yeah. open source, it's free, you can go look at the source code. I. Sometimes you answer my questions, I look at the source code, which is not where I started as a data engineer. <laughs> but that's where I'm at now, is I'll be like, oh, let me go find this class what, what, within the source code. Is code it? And check it out. What, what kind of, like, what it's, actual language is it written uh, in? Most of it's in Scala. I use okay. a lot of PySpark, which is just Python on Spark, right? right. So what they did there. Right. So I use a lot of PySpark, and there's a separate you know, part of code to look at there. But ultimately, it's typically mapping back to the Scala code base. There's Scala. definitely Java in the code base as well, but yeah. usually it's Scala. If you're and Scala is kind of like Java, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think that's fair. It's kind of <laughs> like Java. So like it's C-based. Scala, so Scala you know. runs on the JVM. And so, okay. so you run Scala the same way you run Java. 
um, but like the actual like data objects are different. And so if you're going to go back and forth between the two, it's it's very possible, but you have to do some yeah, data it. type conversion got and things it. that get kind of strange. So then, yeah. so then what is Databricks? Yeah, so Databricks is a managed Apache Spark, uh, meaning instead of trying to get the open source code and run it on my own, mm -hmm. uh, maybe I spin up some machines and install it or, you know, Maybe I do it the DevOps way and I have scripts that Jenkins goes and runs some stuff that installs it everywhere. Uh, instead, I can just pay Databricks and <laughs> say, oh, here's a portal where I can spin up a cluster. Mm -hmm. And I can spin up, what you end up with is a workspace, which is kind of where most users would go in and work with Databricks. And you can have multiple clusters within that workspace. So you, it makes it really easy to say, I want to get started today. I want to get my team on Spark, or I want to test out Spark even. Um, you can sign up for Databricks, spin up a cluster for the marketing team, spin up a cluster for your data engineer, spin up a cluster for data science people, mm -hmm. and they can all work mostly independent with their own you know, processing power, though they can share some data and things depending on how you set permissions. So mm -hmm. um, that's, that's what I look at Databricks as the, the main value it adds, but like most tools that you have to pay for, they do a bunch on top of that. So they call it a unified analytics platform. So there's tools to help you with machine learning. There's uh, a lot of capabilities around like managing your your data that you're going to going to be using with Spark. A lot of capabilities that kind of are proprietary to Databricks at this point, or they're just better in Databricks, right? It's it's an optimized version of Apache Spark. Uh, one of the popular things these days is Delta Lake, which is a way of working with. Um, it's a different file format, basically. Mm -hmm. It's a transaction log on top of your files, and that's just a bit better in Databricks than it is open source at this point. So those kind of things, depending on which use cases you have kind of there's different benefits mm -hmm. um, from Databricks. So it's kind of the commercial implementation of it, right? Like a or one of them, I it's, suppose. It's, yeah. So some of the founders or some of the creators, I should say, of Apache Spark uh, founded Databricks and are, are still there leading it today. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of the company that has built a lot of Apache Spark and is the place to go get a managed, really powerful version. It runs in Azure, AWS, or Google Cloud at this point. And, and do you think this is a good solution for most companies? Or like, so, you know, if we're Facebook, we're going to roll it ourselves. We're yeah. going to have people that are contributing to the core of mm -hmm. it and building it from scratch, uh, open source only. Yeah. But if we're not Facebook or some bleeding edge tech company, if we're a, I don't know, medical device manufacturer or something like that, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, where is the line of, hey, should you go open source and do it yourself versus should you just pay Databricks? Yeah, my advice would be, if, I tend to work with sort of analytics and data science teams in case that wasn't obvious. And so my advice to those teams is try out Databricks, uh, you know, figure out what cost you think you'll have. Clusters don't have to run all the time. If you're doing interactive querying throughout the day, those things will auto-terminate based on mm -hmm. a schedule you set. And so... Um, worst case scenario, you set it to auto-terminate every 60 minutes. If it's not getting used, someone has to wait five minutes for the cluster to spin up when they try and do their query, which is annoying, but, you know, go get a cup of coffee or whatever and mm -hmm. come back and keep working. It's not going to do that every Or, or every you can have it if, if, we're, if our office is in one time zone and we're all working from yeah. 8 to 5, we just have it up and running constantly so we don't have you to slow down, but then outside of that... It'll auto-terminate every... Yeah, whatever. they have APIs. You can either use auto-terminate, and it might go down over lunch depending on how you're set and if anyone's working during the lunch break. Um, or you could just use the API and have a script somewhere that, that turns it off. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've done that, spun it up and down just so we don't have to wait five minutes because we get impatient sometimes. Right. Um, but if it's always going to be on anyway, then I think the cost starts to become more of a... You're, you're paying... 
you're paying for something different with Databricks, and so you need to kind of run the numbers and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, it's, I think it's a really good way to work with Apache Spark. If you're never going to use notebooks, uh, so Databricks has notebooks as part of it, which a lot of times you're going to add on to Apache Spark, Jupyter open notebooks. source anyway. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot like Jupyter Notebooks. Oh, yeah. They call them Databricks Notebooks. I forget if it's based on that or, or what, but it's sure. got a similar thing. Everyone has notebooks. It's, it's another yeah. form of that, yeah. So, okay, so, so I've got, all right, so I'm a, you know, mid-sized company. Mm -hmm. I, I called up Databricks. I said, send it over. We've installed it. It's up and running. Or, or actually, I just went to the website and signed up, and now I'm up and running. Yeah. Um, I called Dustin, and I say, okay, Dustin, um, what's next? Right. So I have I have it, I have my cluster up and running. How do I get data into it? How do I get people right. logged in? Like, like like what are the steps? Walk me through it. Yeah, and so um, Databricks is going to be running in the cloud, and so a lot of times the conversation is, okay, where's your data at? Go, right. It's in. It depends, but a lot of times they'll go, well, we have a data lake, and it's built on Azure Blob Storage or Azure Data Lake Storage, or it's based on AWS S3, or it's based on Google Cloud Storage. We've got data stored out there that we've been working with already. Mm -hmm. It's not always the case, but if it's already there. And we go, cool, let's um, basically either do the little process to mount that where you just need credentials, you run a command in Databricks and it's mounted and it just kind of stays there Shows within up. your workspace. Yeah. Or you just write the Spark code that includes the credentials. It's not too hard once you, once you find the right code snippets, which I've got a few of those for Azure available. Um, you're connected to your data and you can start querying it using the Spark API. And so even, even to go maybe a little further than you meant is uh, you pull up a Databricks notebook, you have a Spark session automatically, which means you can type um, my, my data frame equals spark.read.parquet, uh, and mm -hmm. then put in the path to your, your data, and if you've already registered the credentials, you're good to go. You'll get data into that data frame. Mm -hmm. You can do df, uh, my data frame show or display my data frame, and you'll see your data. So if the data is already in a data lake that's uh, in the cloud especially, it's pretty easy to get going. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and it doesn't, and so the, the benefit and why you would even do that, again, is like that, uh, parquet file or that data, that whatever we'll call it a table yeah. for my dinosaur brain to understand it. Uh, <laughs> that table of data could have a million rows in it. It could have a billion rows in it. Uh, I don't care, right? Like yeah. I'm going to run my query and Spark uh, or Databricks in this case is going to figure out how to what resources it needs. Yeah. Now, now is it uh, a you know? The reason you you do it isn't just that it automatically scales and adds more machines, right? Like it's faster than if I were to try to do it myself, is that right? Does it kind of shard a query or anything like that, like a Vertica oh. or a, uh, well, well, like a big so, query? I mean, you know, something like that. Yeah, so I wouldn't compare, at this point, I wouldn't compare querying with Spark SQL, which is kind of what I described, with querying with Spark data frames. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't describe that as being comparable to BigQuery or Vertica. Okay. Like, the, the amount of time to get your results back is just not the same. Got it. Uh, those things will get you it in a second or two, maybe quicker, especially on Vertica, maybe quicker. Um, you know, you might you might wait a few seconds for the results. You might wait a couple minutes. It's not mm -hmm. weird to have a query that takes a couple minutes. If you're doing exploratory analysis on a big data set, a couple of minutes really isn't bad. We've seen much worse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to download it and load it into Pandas, it's going to take longer just to download it than to use Spark in some cases. So. Um, it is going to, if you have partitioning set up, which is like a best practice technique for building data lake tables, it will, and, you, and you're doing filters, of course, it will actually push those filters down to your partitions, uh, which will save you a lot of read of data. It'll save so, you a lot of read of data. It'll also then parallelize that or at least run a bunch of tasks concurrently. And so if I have 200 files that I need to read in to get to the, the final result I'm asking for, it'll 
probably split that into 200 tasks and then run those as quick as it can. So a bigger cluster will go quicker than a smaller cluster at that point. And, and do I have to tell Databricks how big my cluster is in advance or does it figure that out? You tell it, you do say how many worker nodes you want, which okay. is really where you know the work gets done, obviously. And you, but you can set it to auto scale. So you can say, I think it defaults to auto scale from like two to eight nodes, something mm -hmm. like that, which is a mm -hmm. good starting point. Uh, actually, no, a good starting point if you're testing it out is to make it one or two nodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you're trying to test it with a big data set, like start with two to eight nodes, see if you like those results. And if not, one, one option is to go uh, uh, let it auto scale a bit bigger and see if right. that helps you. Right, okay, cool. So it does do some uh, parallel query type thing, not, not exactly how, say, BigQuery or Vertica does it. But that's it's a similar concept in how it makes a bunch of small tasks and executes them and then brings yeah. them back to you. So a similar yeah. idea, not as now. Um, I'm doing this because on my local machine it's too slow or it just can't. I can't even fathom running it on a petabyte of data or something crazy like that, right? That that's one main reason. Yeah. Um, Another reason is that I expect that we will have too much data in the future. So I'm going to start with this API, which really isn't that hard to use on small data sets either. I'm going to start with this and maybe have a couple of nodes, which is maybe a little bit overkill, mm -hmm. but it's a popular way to work with data. There's tons of tutorials and posts about how to do stuff with uh, Apache Spark. I'm going to start here, start with a small cluster, and I think we're going to grow. Okay. Um, yeah, and, go ahead. and then um, if my data is not in a data lake, on the cloud, yeah. if my data is um, in a SQL Server database mm -hmm. in our own data center, right? Yeah. What do I do then? Is it a similar process, or like how do I get data that isn't cloud-based data already? Right. So there's uh, connectors to, I'd say, I, I don't know if it's all databases. There's connectors to most databases, partly because there's a JDBC connector which speaks to most relational databases. Right. So you'll find the appropriate connector. You might have to install a library, which is. If you're just doing this one time, it's just kind of clicking through the portal to upload upload a library or, or find it. It's, it's really not too hard to get installed. Um, so for SQL Server to get the best results, uh, you would uh, install a certain MS SQL DB library, follow the tutorial honestly, and say, oh, okay, so replace the table name with mine, uh, get the credentials in there. And if you're doing it the right way, it takes a little more setup of uh, a secret scope and things that you aren't typing your credentials into the mm -hmm. notebook. But if you're just doing it one-off with like a throwaway public data set anyway, put your credentials in, put in the table names, and you're reading from that instead of a file. And so uh, you need to think a little differently about it if you're reading from a database because um, as much as Spark will try to parallelize, mm -hmm. your database may not want 200 different connections at once. <laughs> so um, maybe start start small, it, it usually is not too bad if you're starting with a small example and on a database that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. And keeping an eye on, okay, what's happening on the database side, what's happening on the Spark side. But yeah, it's pretty easy to get started because there's so many connectors, which is another reason why Apache Spark might be used even for pretty small workloads because it can connect to mm -hmm. so much these days. And, and then when I'm working in my notebook doing my Python-like code, mm -hmm. we'll call it, um, I don't, do I care or do I not care where like like let's say I just came in as a data scientist here, someone else already set up all these connections. I just know where the data is. Mm -hmm. It does my code change at all in terms of how I interact with the data based on the database that I'm connected to? Usually, there's some configs or some options that you pass into the read statement, and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's usually okay. the case. And so, um, and even to go beyond that, when you go from batch mode to streaming mode. Um, you can basically change from a spark.read statement, let's say, to a spark.read stream. 
And then you might have to add in a couple of different options uh, to, your, to your read options, and that's mm -hmm. really it. And so we've built quite a few, or I've been a part of projects where we basically swap out the data source pretty easily. Right. So when I'm writing my code, I call our own custom read from this thing uh, module, and then we kind of swap in different data sources, swap from batch to streaming mode, um, kind of behind the scenes so that if I'm developing, if I'm an ETL developer, a data pipeline developer, I just write all my code using our custom data source class, mm -hmm. and then that's going to go figure out whether we're streaming or batch and, and do the transformation, or do the translation, I should say, mm -hmm. to the right options. Yeah, so, so then, okay, so, so does it make sense? It sounds like maybe a, an easy way to, to scale your work is to work on a smaller data set, even though the point of Spark is that it can scale. Uh, but it'll be, just be much faster if I have a thousand rows versus a hundred thousand rows, right? So if I'm working, so so what you're saying it sounds like is I can easily kind of say, cool. Let's say I have a sample Postgres database or whatever mm -hmm. sample of my larger uh, Parquet stuff living in Google Cloud or wherever it is. Yeah. I can start. I can write all my code on that, and then essentially change out my connection string to point to the big one. And all my code shouldn't really have to change, right? Maybe yes. a couple things up front to get the data in, but after that, I'm talking, you know, and especially if I'm in pandas or something, right? Yeah, fair. Yes, that's that's very fair. That's that's why I encourage people to do it. Uh, really, you can usually, if there's an index on your database table or a partition in your data lake table, you can point to just you know one city worth of data or one day's worth of data for your real data set and mm. start there. Especially if you're using Google Cloud Storage, let's say, you don't care if you're hammering Google Cloud Storage. I mean, maybe some costs will add up, but probably nothing you care about. So if you put in the correct filter that, that matches your partition, you can start building everything right there and then just take that filter off when you're ready to do more. Nice. Okay. So so this okay, so so just walking walking through it. I've got my connection, I've got some data in. Um, I'm writing some code to analyze that data to come up with something. Um, how do I do the typical thing that I want to do, which is to visualize the data? Is there a way in Spark just to visualize data easily? So it's interesting. So with Databricks, let's talk Databricks. Yeah, yeah, that's what <laughs> uh, I mean. Databricks. In Spark, I would say no. In Databricks, um, the notebook itself has some ways to like, when you get the results, uh, you can do some charting and things there, um, which uh, I, it's not something I use often, but I've seen like, especially data scientists that are really just trying to tell a story through their notebook and, mm -hmm. and, sh and be able to explain something. They can visualize and explain the results uh, pretty easily through notebooks um, with the way they do their charts right within the Databricks notebook. There's also the, this uh, uh, SQL analytics, I think they call it workspace for Databricks. I gotta find the right term. Mm -hmm. um, and so with this, this new mode of working, they have better dashboarding visualization capabilities built in. And I, I've seen a little bit of that. I need to get hands-on with it and see. But uh, I think it's taken a lot of what Redash um, mm -hmm. is that Databricks has acquired and making it available for you. So there's more and more sophisticated capabilities built into Databricks for that. Mm -hmm. um, you can connect to Databricks from Power BI, from Tableau, right? You can connect to oh, Apache Spark from some of these other uh, tools as well. And so... That's one way to do it. Another way is to write out the results if it really is going to be processed every, you know, if you really need to update every hour, day, whatever it is, you could write out the results somewhere and then access that storage directly if your tool is good for that. So like a Tableau extract from Google Cloud Storage, assuming that connector is there, probably wouldn't be too bad an idea. If you're just going to import it to your visualization tool, mm -hmm. lots of options there. So so let's talk about that. So, so part of the if I'm a data scientist or data engineer using Spark here, mm -hmm. Databricks, I'm going to go through and, and 
maybe transform the data, and then I want to serialize that somewhere. I want to store that somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And then my notebook becomes essentially like an ETL job. Is that possible? Like, how do it's you very do possible. that? Yeah. Um, it's very possible. It's not my favorite way of working. We can come back to that if you like. <laughs> but it's very possible, and honestly, that's probably how you get started. Is you have a notebook that does almost everything. You might even kick off a background notebook, you know, as part of your your steps get to get a little more complicated there. Uh, and then you can just schedule it right there within the UI. You can schedule a job on Databricks that is going to run on a schedule, mm -hmm. and it'll kick off a notebook, and you can even you know pass in some parameters and things like that. So that's a very common way of working. Mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, use source control to try and store those and have them available in source control. When it comes to things like we're going to run this, we're going to write a lot of code and have a big set of libraries that we work with that we custom create then I find that you really want unit tests. You really want to run this in a low, on my machine, on develop, on production, have different Databricks environments, maybe in different you know, subscriptions or accounts within your cloud provider to separate all these things. So when you start to get into like the real platform development, right. I'd say it's more common or maybe a better idea in my opinion to uh, write the code, package it up, whether it's Python or, or Scala, package it up, upload it to uh, your Databricks workspace, and then have, have jobs or whatever it is kick off from there. We actually do yeah. a lot of our job kickoffs through the API too, so our scheduling is outside of Databricks just for, for our own reasons, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. They're kind of trigger-based, and so we have something that kicks off a job when a certain thing happens. And so we don't use some of the functionality of Databricks for our production data platform, but we certainly use it a lot for analyzing what's going on and um, and even just to quickly test out ideas, like to kind of just spike on ideas before we build them into our full platform. Right, okay, so <clears throat> so in terms of productionalizing this stuff, which is probably, is, is that a controversial topic, whether or not this should be a production kind of no, thing? I don't no? think it is. No. Okay, so, so, so when you say I built how, a How to do it's controversial, whether it should be considered production and whether there should be like processes and stuff around it, I don't think that's controversial. Got it, okay. Because yeah, I know in, you know, um, I was talking to Eric Stone recently, we were talking about R versus Python. Mm. And it's like, ah, oh, well I love R, but for production stuff, it probably should be Python. So so in this case though, what you're saying is, I can make a workbook um, that is essentially a collection of uh, code, statements mm -hmm. that do things yeah. to the data, and the, the outcome could be uh, just return a data set or write the data set somewhere else or create a visualization or do something like that. And then I can make that a production kind of data pipeline job, yep. right? And then and, and you can trigger that either on a schedule just using the, the built-in stuff, maybe if it's a daily job or a weekly job for your mm -hmm. marketing dashboard or something. Or I can actually have an external kind of event-based, yeah. which, which kind of event-based stuff, is that... I mean, is that a fair way to describe real time? Like something happened and then it kicked off something else? I mean, there may be a delay, but like the, the trigger for it wasn't yeah. just a random arbitrary schedule. It was like, you yeah. know, triggered by an event. When talking to non-technical people, I think they would consider what we're building that's very event-based. It processes a file at a time as it arrives. They'd probably consider that real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not because there are a few delays in the process, but the initial ingestion is like, yeah, it's real time. It it lands, we move it over here, and then we process it. That's real time. It's not, there's no delay. It's not waiting for a schedule, right? Right. Um, I would say that event, there's some event processing that is part of real time. It's like a subset of real time processing. Event based, in this case, is more like we kick off a batch job based on events. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so I would say it's not quite real time from a technical perspective, but uh, I wouldn't hesitate to say that we're processing these files 
real time. And then I, as a technical person, tend to say, we're expecting a couple minutes for a small file, mm -hmm. right? And then usually people are like, oh, that's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to me, I'm like, I kind of wish I could get this down to 30 seconds. I know it's possible, yeah. but we'd have to like make these trade-offs and what we can do. And you know, to a lot of people that are just wanting the data to, to flow through, like, oh, two minutes, awesome, no yeah. problem. Now, if I'm, um, if I'm doing this work and we're talking about these batch jobs versus event-based, and then where does, like, so streaming data, real, so when you create a Spark streaming job, are you mm -hmm. doing it in a notebook? Or is there a different place you're doing that? And then like, is that, um, yeah, I guess, is that how you would go about creating a streaming uh, pipeline? And and does that, I mean, that probably doesn't pull from a Parquet file or something, it probably pulls directly from a Kafka stream or something? Like, like, like yeah. where does Kafka come into the mix here and how yeah. do you actually build a streaming job? Okay, so you can very much build a Spark streaming job in a notebook and trigger that. Um, there's a few ways you could pull that off uh, that aren't really weird, um, but you could trigger that and it's basically just going to run and not stop. <laughs> if you go with kind of the default setup where it, you just set it to run until someone kills it. Mm -hmm. And probably you could set it to alert if it stops or retry if it stops, <laughs> um, but it really shouldn't stop, I guess, is kind of the idea of the Spark streaming jobs. Not to say they never do, but mm -hmm. they're meant to just keep running uh, continuously. So you can do that through notebooks or you can package up the code and submit it through a job, which is how I've done streaming so far with Databricks. You can, uh, uh, you asked one other question in there. That Where, does to touch come, like, Where does Kafka like come in? Like the data in? Yes. coming in is the key part, right? Because if let's say you have yeah. a, a workflow that does something to the data, you know, mm -hmm. adds a calculation, whatever. Um, you want that to happen. Yeah in real time in terms of like data ha data came in and I'm automatically yeah. processing it and I'm writing it out somewhere else. Um, but but that data, is that coming from a, like data will, like just just correct me on, on this, on, on what, I, what I don't understand, but I have an app or I have a user that has our app on it that that user clicks a button and does a thing in the app. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, they buy, you know, I have a little golf game on my phone. They just bought a new set of golf balls or whatever. Well, that's, that triggers an event, and then, mm -hmm. then that would go into Kafka, right, from yeah. the app, uh, assuming you're connected to the internet and all mm -hmm. the piping's working. Then what happens? And then, okay. how, and then how does that, that event, that piece of data, I just that purchase event, whatever it is, lead to, I have a Spark streaming job that did something with yeah. that? Cool. So the, the first thing that you kind of, I think, skipped over is we don't really want our application to talk directly to Spark. It's, right. It's a really tough thing to pull off because they might have a lot of events at once or we might get behind or our Spark job might be restarting because we just upgraded something and it's going to be down for like a minute and we want that, that capability. So we want this middle layer. We want a broker in between mm -hmm. it. And so that's where Kafka comes in. Uh, Kafka, Apache Kafka, so another Apache project, is the open source version of a, uh, uh, a scalable message broker. Um, they talk about it as a distributed log. You should totally read up on the difference there if you're going to get into this stuff. Yeah. Jay Krebs has an amazing, very long blog post that describes it well, even after all these years. Um, but if you think of Message Broker, it's going to get events from producers. So our applications are producing things. Maybe we even have some data pipelines producing things back to Kafka. It's going to hold on to them, and each one has its own topic. So I might have my uh, purchase topic, let's say. All purchase transactions come through there. And then we can have a consumer, a Spark streaming job that's reading from that topic. 
So when we do that, we give just a few properties that tell it, hey, this is who I am, like an ID for the consumer, and um, which topic I want, and then we're just gonna get this stream of data. Uh, with Spark, it's typically gonna be a micro batch. So we're gonna mm -hmm. keep, keep pulling you and give me data every time I ask. And if you don't change anything and you kick that off and there's no, no data flowing in, it's just gonna keep pinging Kafka over and over and over again every, Forever. it's a few hundred milliseconds or something. Like it's just gonna keep pinging as fast as it can waiting for data. When you get data, it'll process that batch and then um, go check in again. So you might have a second or so, depending on your setup, a second or two, and then it'll go get the next set of data from Kafka. What's amazing about Kafka really quickly is that then if we have another application that needs that same information, they don't have to wait for us to process it and put in a data lake and then they're reading from a data lake into the application. Mm -hmm. They're setting their own consumer from that same exact Kafka topic on their own, they're on their own like position in the topic to read in those events. And that's, that's one of the main reasons Kafka is what I'm usually streaming from is because we think this data is going to more than one place. It's not just there for our analytics as much as that's how I see the world. It's right. also there to drive you know, the processes that the user cares about, which is now that I made this purchase, send me the thing I bought, right? Yeah, right, so, so that's the beauty of a platform like Kafka, right? It's the scalable kind of message broker yeah. there. Um, now, now, when that message comes across with that purchase event, your Spark job, so in my notebook, which has my transformation analytics code, whatever, mm -hmm. I actually just have a connection. Like instead of you know connect to BigQuery or connect to SQL Server, I just say connect to Kafka. Is that right? Or or, yeah. or, or so it's just. Um, a, you would, yes, you would. Depending on where you're running Spark, so we'll talk very general for a moment. You would make yeah. sure you have the correct Kafka streaming, the Spark SQL Kafka libraries installed if you're using Spark SQL streaming like I do. You'll make sure you have those installed, don't forget that. Um, <laughs> and then you will say spark.readstream.format Kafka. Right. And it's like, oh, I see this, I see this library is available, I know what to do. You pass in a bunch of options, which is going to be where to get the data from. If mm -hmm. you're doing it locally, it's super, it's pretty short, the list of stuff you need to give it. If it's a real world scenario, you have to provide some credentials and some right. good stuff to keep your data secure. Yeah. And then from there, I go off and work in data frames or pandas or whatever I want to do. Right. In, in Spark data frames, typically. Yeah. Right, right. And then you, I... Whether or not you can... You can actually convert from Spark data frames back to Pandas. I don't think is where you're going, but you can convert yeah. back to Pandas pretty easily and, and then from Pandas back to Spark. If you're dealing with streaming, I think you'd have to kind of wrap it into, hey, I'm going to go into batch mode here at the end and do that piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's something like for each or for each, ba for each batch. And it'll just, and then you can just kind of go into that mode and say, all right, read the data, do all this stuff with Spark streaming, and then right at the end, convert it to pandas and do this thing for me. And it'll just do that for each micro batch. So, so then that data, let's say the answer is that I, I run some, ran some calculation on it and I wrote a new row to uh, another table somewhere. Yeah. And then I have a dashboard somewhere that the marketing team or whomever can just refresh or whatever and bam, yeah. there it is. So purchase event happened in the app you know, pipeline through all this thing and then bam, the, an end user at our company. And, and the, the thing you pointed out is that the app itself could see that message and go, oh, now I need to deliver that thing he just purchased yeah. to him, right? So, so is that typical though? Like w wouldn't the app just want to read, send, the connect, send that bit of data to itself instead of having to go through Kafka? I mean, is this so common or? It used to be that we had one big application uh -huh. Right, 
uh, and we called that a monolith architecture. At least right. we call it now, looking back, we call it a monolith architecture where the application is one thing. And so why don't I just talk directly to myself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now yeah. what we've done is we've tried to break that up. Mostly, I think, because of complexity of uh, human organization, <laughs> complexity of having 100 developers working on one giant application is very tricky. We've broken it into microservice services. And so what you probably have is your kind of user, I don't know, user store experience. And then when they submit the purchase, you might have a team that's only focused on purchase and fulfillment or something. Mm. And so those really are separate teams, separate services. And you don't want them to have to run in the same place to where they can talk directly. You want something in the middle to help that communication. And that's what Kafka gives us. It's Kafka's kind of the glue a really way to do that, in, yes. in that way to keep things. Yeah. Um, and and it, would, it would have to exist then, right? You would have, if you want to have a, these services kind of decoupled like that, you maybe not Kafka, but there has to be something doing that. You need some kind of message broker or yeah. you need APIs that you call. And well, there's lots of reasons why people don't like to call APIs. They prefer message brokers, and well, that's not really my, my game. But, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, because, I mean, my, my initial thought was, yeah, what if my purchase fulfillment service is down all of a sudden? That's and the, a, purchase, a yeah. person bought. I mean, in the Kafka world, uh, with the messaging world, that data point that per that event is still there. Yep. I just haven't pulled it in yet. Once I produce a Kafka, I can pretty much not care about it. Unless right. someone comes back and tells me I messed up, yeah. I produced a Kafka, I did my job. The other service is going to pull it off and get it. If right. I'm trying to hit their API and something's down, even for a minute, I've got to hold on to that information until I can get it to them. Which is what Kafka would do for yeah. you. Yeah. Right, got it. Okay. Some people get caught up in the contract between the two and that when we change schemas. But no matter what, you have some sort of contract, some sort of schema where you know, our fulfillment service is expecting message to look a certain way and there's only so much variation we can give them. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be true of APIs or message brokers. Right, so, so maybe I added yeah. some new attributes to that, but you don't necessarily care as long as the key ones you're looking for are there. If right. those aren't there, then we have a problem. But yeah. we're never losing data in this scenario, Correct. right? Yeah. It's always being logged somewhere and we yeah. can replay it even if it's a, you know, a delay, it's still there. And if I, as a consumer, I'll go back to being a data engineer for a minute. If my, if my data pipeline job failed because I was not expecting something that changed in the schema. With Kafka, I can go, I can like tell it to go run from an earlier offset, an earlier position in the stream, mm -hmm. and I can replay some data. And a lot of times when we build our Spark, Spark jobs, we're expecting that at some point we'll reload some or all of the data from Kafka, and we're trying to make sure that, you know, the downstream writes can handle seeing the same data again. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, um Databricks and, and Spark and all this, so so I get I get the value of it. I get what it does, um, and and it seems pretty powerful. But why would I do Spark over something else? Like, are there other alternatives that, sure. that do similar things? <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, put your you know fanboy hat on of Spark. Like, why would I do Spark versus? Yeah. I, and I don't know what the other alternatives are. So, um, so there's alternatives like Apache Beam. Mm -hmm. uh, Flink, many others too. Um, we'll, we'll go with those for now. And the, the differentiation between them has sort of, uh, they're not as varied as they used to be, right? Mm. And so I don't, I don't really sell any of these tools, so I don't really feel come in and go, you gotta use Spark versus Flink. You're crazy if you use Flink. Like, I've seen uh -huh. it, it looks similar to me. I'd be like, okay, I could probably jump over and do that, no big deal. Um, what I like about Apache Spark, though, and what I've continued to like is that it, 
it is general purpose, and I use that term specifically. I'm not saying these others can't be, they might be just as general purpose, but I can do almost anything I want to do with data processing in Apache Spark. And I like that because getting new libraries, getting new clusters set up, um, getting security to approve the package I want to use gets tricky. And so being like, I have this really powerful uh, system, really powerful set of libraries that I can use. Uh, I found that to be very helpful for me. Mm -hmm. uh, another reason is that you can run it in a lot of places. So Databricks is a very popular one. AWS has EMR where you can run it. Azure has uh, mm. Synapse, which has a Spark component to it. So that same Spark code can be, uh, Google has Dataproc. There might be other ways to run it there too. I can run it on a Hadoop environment. And so we've just got all these options for running Apache Spark that make it a really good choice. The other reason though, and this is more, <laughs> most managers probably don't consider this much. The other reason is there's a lot of people developing Spark and a lot of people, a lot of jobs for Spark developers. So if I want to ever leave my company, I want my team to ever succeed in their career, um, I know that Apache Spark is a good skill for them to know. Yeah. Um, at least to be able to like speak the same language as other people. Doesn't mean there's not jobs for all these other <laughs> frameworks, right? But um, I kind of look and go, many job descriptions include Apache Spark, even if it's just hopeful. They're just, they just want to use Spark someday, so they throw it in there. And so I think it's a really good one to learn and use and get good at. But there's, uh, if you're going to be doing a lot of streaming, you should totally look at Confluent and mm -hmm. um, K-Streams, K-SQL, Kafka Streams, K-SQL, uh, Kafka Connect. You should totally look at those and see which is going to work better for your use case. But if you're going to be doing a lot of batch work also, that's where I'm like, well, I know Spark can handle it. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to be reading from files instead of from Kafka, I know Spark can handle it. And if I want everything to flow through Kafka, then uh, Confluent has a really strong case there. Yeah. Ideally, you have both available to you. That's my ideal situation. I could. And, and the reason you would do else. that, so, so, so Confluent is the, uh, the Databricks of the Kafka world, right? It's yeah. like the commercialized yep. version built by the guys that built Kafka, yeah. right? So, so in, in that platform, there are options for running streaming type data processing jobs, you're saying, but it only would work from Kafka, right? I can't say, oh, I have data coming in from Kafka and also let me pull in the SQL Server database. Or like, forget Kafka, I just want to pull in SQL Server. My, my understanding is Kafka would be in the mix. Yeah. Um, you can totally have SQL Server replicated to Kafka, and that's a very good model to, to follow if you're gonna try and get more real time. Mm -hmm. uh, you could have change data capture set up to uh, send your data to Kafka and then continue the processing from there. Mm -hmm. So usually if I'm gonna draw a diagram of like what I want the architecture to be, most everything's gonna go to Kafka or Azure Event Hubs, which is kind of similar, or uh, Kinesis or Cloud PubSub, like one of these things that works like Kafka. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna have it go there first before it goes anywhere else because then we can have multiple consumers. We can store it at least for a few days, if not much longer, on Kafka itself and replay the data. It just it gives me a lot of capabilities that if I'm reading from SQL Server every hour uh, and just taking the latest updates, I might miss some stuff in the middle there, right? Mm -hmm. I've spent my career trying to explain updates. how, oh yeah, well, I've looked back and it looks like at midnight, this was their data. But then at 12.05, something came and changed the data, and that's why our snapshot looks really weird because something happened in the middle mm -hmm. uh, of our processing even that we didn't expect. And when you're dealing with event um, events like you send to Kafka, you've got all that transactions and you just build it back into you know, the view that you need for it. Right, and, and you mentioned um, you know, adding this to your resume and that being an attractive thing. 
how do you actually learn Spark? Like, you know, I've, I've done some stuff in it. I think I have a, a basic course that I put together a while yeah. ago on it. It felt very Python-like to me. It felt like writing Python code. Um, like, what kind of person do you think would be a good Spark developer? Mm. And then how, are, how do they learn sort of the unique syntax of Spark and how that yeah. works? So um, I've, been try I've been creating videos and blog posts to try and help with like a, a view of what a real, uh, usually it's Azure Databricks, a real Spark job looks like. And so uh, certainly uh, checking out some of my videos is a good like, hey, here's what it actually looks like. And I can actually, and, you, and I always link to my GitHub where you can go find the imports and the, like, the real stuff you need to do this from Databricks. Mm -hmm. So you can sign up for Databricks Community Edition, okay. or you can go get a free trial on, on Azure, possibly on some of the others. But with, with Azure, you can just spin up Databricks from the UI. You don't have to call up Databricks like we <laughs> joked about earlier. From, uh, from Databricks Community Edition, again, you sign up and they're going to give you probably, I think it's like a one node. Uh, I think it runs on AWS. Uh, environment that you can work with and get to get started. Mm -hmm. Getting started notebooks from Databricks uh, are a really good way to go. Uh, they will basically walk you through the code, you click run, you see it happen. You're not necessarily thinking through all the syntax when you do that, but you've got real working code there to start with. Then what I recommend, and this kind of depends how much you've programmed in the past, but if you've done Python development especially, find a PySpark notebook, run through it, read what it says, or watch the video that tells you about what's going on there, and then go change it. Connect it to your own Kafka environment, even if it's just a Docker container running locally. Connect it to your own development database that doesn't need to be locked down because mm -hmm. you don't want to worry about security right away. Um, and, and go from there, right? So find an example and then experiment with your own ideas or your own data. The, the docs have quite a bit of information in them. Once you have the right libraries, once you have kind of the basic structure, uh, look at the Spark SQL or yeah, Spark SQL programming guides. What I'd recommend on the Apache Spark documentation, and you know, search for the thing you care about. If you say I want to write data, you're yeah. going to see a few basic examples of how to write data, um, and kind of work with that a little bit. And then from there, Stack Overflow and sure. people's blog posts make a lot more sense once you've run through a simple tutorial, tried to manipulate it yourself, probably failed a bit at it, <laughs> hit some problems. Now you go back and start you know, learning more about it and it's all gonna click better I th to me once I've tried it and had mm -hmm. some problems. That's great, and, and how hard would you say learning um, this Spark code is? I mean, let's put, yeah. uh, I don't know, Objective-C at the hardest <laughs> end of this and maybe Python or SQL at kind of the easier yeah. side of it. Like, like where, I, where does it fall? I think if you have only worked in SQL, which is what I, I mean, I, I did a degree in computer science, so I'd, yes, I'd worked with programming yeah, languages, but for right. about four years, it was these drag-and-drop tools like I talked about, and it was SQL. It was a lot of SQL, so I was really good at writing SQL. Um, if you've only done that, querying a data lake with Apache Spark really isn't that hard to get started, and I've tried to share, share that in some videos and some, uh, at some conferences because I want people to know that it's not that crazy to read data that's already been prepared for you with Spark SQL. If you want to get into data processing, that's where if you've already worked with Python, I'd say it's, you know, if you've worked with Python, if you built stuff with Python successfully, you're gonna be able to learn Apache Spark. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, I don't wanna make anything sound too easy. Like you're going to hit some weird stuff. Um, but if you start with a working example and pay attention to the things at the end that actually do something. So we didn't talk about it, but Apache Spark is a uh, lazy evaluating. So you're basically building up what you want it to do. 
and then there's some step towards the end, usually it's a write command that's actually gonna make it do everything. Mm. So you might go there and click all these cells in Databricks and it's like, done, done, done. You're like, this is really fast, what's going on here? <laughs> well, you haven't, you haven't actually given it any actions. It's just storing up a query plan or ex execution plan. Mm -hmm. Then you go call one of the actions like a write or a display or show. And now it's gonna go run all that. And you might get some errors that are Java errors. That's, that's probably the hardest piece to get your head around. It's getting better for PySpark people, but getting around, hey, we got these crazy errors, what do I do with it? That's where it really gets tricky. Mm -hmm. And uh, So you, how do you solve that? What, what's the answer? I mean, you know, I, I remember <laughs> when I first ever started doing database stuff, I was writing an Oracle 6i PL SQL commands, mm. and you would have to uh, type them in to like Notepad and then paste it into a command line. Yep. And, and, and it would be sometimes this giant thing. And it'd be like, error at or before line 75. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah. What was that? I mean, so how bad is the error handling or, yeah, I guess error handling and, and messaging? And then what do you do? How do you troubleshoot errors in, in Spark? Yeah. Um, I think for most people, if you aren't a Java developer that's been reading Java error messages, it's going to take time is the main thing to know. And so... Uh, even when I started with Python, I, I hate to admit it now, but when I started with Python, like I spent many hours with uh, what is it like invalid indentation or whatever, oh, which yeah. obviously means is this is all based on tabs and spaces, and I've done it wrong. That's yeah. obviously what it means now. But I was like, indentation, I don't get it. I'm like manually looking at. Every, I didn't know to look for the line in the air. I didn't like yeah. catch yeah. all that, and so I'm just sitting there banging my head against Python, going. I don't know, it looks fine to me, and I probably had tabs and spaces in one spot, and I was doing right. it in some notepad or something. And So you're gonna have those experiences, like with, I think, any programming language when you get started. If you have anyone you can like have take a look at the error, even if it's briefly, and tell you, hey, here's what this means, then you'll start to pick it up quickly. Because there'll be a stack trace with all the different classes, which are mostly these Java Scala classes that you've never even seen or thought about. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll say something like, analysis exception, column whatever doesn't exist in this projection. And then you're yeah. like, oh. I don't know what that really means, but what it means is you referenced a column that doesn't exist. You typed, right. you typed the column name wrong somewhere, you wrote, loaded the wrong file, but there's a lot of extra information that can be helpful when it gets tricky, but when it's a simple problem, it's uh, a little tough to find what you care about. Got it, so, so it's not great, you would say, in terms of yeah, how good so, the error messages are and how helpful they are. Yeah, and if you're doing PySpark, definitely start with um, 3.0 or even 3.1, where they've been working really hard on making the Python error messages a lot easier. Mm -hmm. The Python error messages are also then kind of, they, the error happens in the, in the JVM side, so it's a Java right. error, and then it gets kind of wrapped and brought back in. Um, so we've, uh, on our projects, we kind of custom code some things to kind of unpack that and only get the piece we care about and rename it. So the, mm -hmm. our common errors that I do all the time, uh, they give me a nice error message, but they're actually doing stuff like that in the real Spark code base. And so it's getting better and better. Um, but yeah, like, I think it's like anything though. You get this error message, you don't know how to make sense of it. Stack overflow, searching, or type yeah. into Google, Google, but type in like the actual error message you see, like a short bit of it, and it'll take you to stack overflow. It takes practice if you haven't done it to figure out which which post actually has the same problem and the answer makes sense for you but that's the way to go and it just give it time if you're new to it and it'll get way better yeah. once you kind of start to see the pattern so you think it's totally feasible though that somebody that has been working in say sql server their whole life just yeah. writing sql can learn to write data pipelines and analytics workflows in spark with some you know relatively minimal investment, right? 
Yeah, so I, I feel that way and I really do try and spend a lot of like the, the extra time I spend creating content is, is often geared towards people kind of like me where it's like I've been doing the SQL Server thing, maybe I've been doing like really sophisticated data warehouse stuff, but I've been doing it with SQL. I want to transition to data engineer because that's where the jobs are going or I'm excited about some company that mm-hmm. isn't going to have me come write a bunch of SQL statements all the time. Whatever the reason, like I do think it's a possible transition. I think it takes time, it takes focus, and so um, I don't want to make it sound like you know, you're going to jump in in a day and suddenly you're ready to go work a job in it and, and impress them. But if you put a few hours into it, whether it's watching a course and following along or what, put a few hours into it, start with a Databricks community notebook or if you have a Databricks environment if you, if you, through Azure or other places, start with that notebook, type in some statements, and if you need to go... If you are a SQL developer and you want to do, okay, let me see how to register a table. It's really mm-hmm. not that hard. It mm-hmm. should be in some of my examples. Register the table, and then now I can write spark.sql and just paste a big old SQL statement. Yeah. It, it's, Is that if you think about though? it, it's kind of like the Oracle thing that, that yeah. I used to do too, where you type it over a notepad and paste it in and then run it. Yeah. Um, and then debugging gets a little tricky. I don't consider it cheating. Ultimately, yeah. it, it potentially resolves to the same thing under the covers. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, the, it's often the easiest to maintain. So if you've got a team of developers building a platform and all of a sudden you throw in 100 lines of SQL code, <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the easiest thing to maintain. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of a shaky argument, though, because I can read SQL pretty well. So, <laughs> so you know, some people are very strongly that way, and they usually come from a stronger development background than me. For, for me, I'm like, all right, I can read it. I'm okay with it. Um, but typically, I stick to uh, other ways of doing it, and part of that is because it, uh, I do a lot of more dynamic stuff as I go. So it's not just let me process the same data every day in the same way and write it here. If that's your job, doing it in a notebook, using Spark SQL if you want to, you can even set the notebook to be SQL instead of PySpark. Mm. So if you set it to SQL and the table's already registered, then uh, you can create external tables there in SQL too. You can just work all in SQL from a Spark notebook. Mm. Uh, would I go bragging to the world that I'm an Apache Spark developer? Probably not. Right. Um, you do you, but I wouldn't. Um, but I would put it on my resume that like, yes, I've done, an, you know, I've I've queried I've queried the data lake with Spark SQL. Yeah. For sure. That's that's something that uh, if you're an analyst role, that's probably the way you're going to interact with it the most anyway. Yeah. So so it sounds like it's. I mean. SQL and Python, I think, are at this point fairly fundamental skills for data people, right? Yes, I agree. I think you it's know. really hard to get by without knowing SQL, even though I'm seeing people coming out of programs now that don't know SQL because it's a modern world and yeah. they didn't have to learn it. I'm like, yeah. well, that's right. You don't need to know that anymore right. necessarily. But learning SQL for sure, at least having the basics. I think trying to learn some Python um, and then if you're going to bother trying to learn those two, I would say it's worth several hours to a day to experiment with Apache Spark, uh, see how how much you get in that time period, and at least be able to talk intelligently about it. If an interviewer asks you, do I know Apache, do you know Apache Spark? Mm-hmm. You want to be able to say, well, I hear it's really good for big data processing. I haven't had to do that. So I did a tutorial. I think it's cool. I'd love to learn more, but I don't have real well, world and- experience, right? And then they're like, oh, this this person's put some effort in. They're not like, nope, don't know what it is. Next question, please. <laughs> Which is okay. Never heard of it. Sometimes that's going to happen. I got asked that about PGP like three years ago. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, PGP? Encryp- Never done it. The encryption thing? Yeah. yeah. And they're all about PGP. I was Pretty like, oh. Pretty good protection. Like, I think I can learn it. Is this a big deal? Is this like a hard thing or something? And, yeah. Oh, well. They, we... We both decided never to talk again, so it was, it was fine. <laughs> that, no, that's awesome, man. And, and like you said earlier, I think 
the knowing, and that's why I kind of started the, the interview off with that question about like why use Spark? Like why does yeah. Spark exist? I think knowing those things would be really helpful, right? Because I mean, no one yeah. knows everything, but if you get the gist of why something is valuable, and if you're going into a company where you're like, oh, this would totally make sense, yeah. just knowing that, you know, because the syntax is going to change and going to evolve. Yeah. So you'll always be learning uh, those things. But if you understand why you're doing it, the value of it, I think then, you know, at least for me, if I were interviewing somebody, like the rest of the pieces can be, can kind of fall into place of like, yeah. oh, you know Python, you know, you know SQL. Yeah, you'll, you'll be able to figure out the syntax quickly, uh, but not understanding what it's for or why you even do it, yeah. that would be maybe a harder hill to climb. So Yeah, I'd say a couple comments on that. One is that if I'm interviewing someone that's only done SQL and I'm going to ask them to do Apache Spark with Python, so PySpark, uh, I'm a little bit nervous about that transition because I've seen some people struggle with it. And I, don't, I think they're perfectly capable of it. I really do. But I think it just wasn't as exciting to them. They weren't, didn't, weren't, didn't really want to dig in as much as, mm. to me, I was very excited to dig in. And I spent a lot of time that, you know, I, I spent time, uh, uh, thankfully I was able to at the time, I spent some time, you know, off hours figuring out <laughs> what I did wrong all day because <laughs> it's still not working. I know I spent too much time. Let me keep digging. And so it takes some extra time to learn something new. Um, the other thing, though, is I, I got this advice a while back for, like, data engineering, data platform jobs that are using Apache Spark is... It's more important that they've worked with some kind of distributed computing, mm. some kind of distributed code base, um, even if they haven't used Apache Spark. Because that concept of, I'm going to submit this, and it's going to break up into these tasks and run across different machines. And at some point, I might care about that. Usually, eventually, you care about how many tasks is it running, and how much memory is each component using, each task using, and how do I not pay more than I have to and also not have my job run for an hour and then fail because it's out of memory, which mm. is going to happen at some point if you use Apache. It may not run for an hour, but at some point you'll run out of memory. You'll get an out of memory error with Apache Spark. You'll read through a lot of blog posts and hopefully you'll find the answer eventually. <laughs> so I even <laughs> end up usually notes. reading, quite, you know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I think that Working with one of the tools like Apache Spark, if you've worked with Hadoop MapReduce, I mean, you, you've got a good foundation there. Right. Why not try Spark for a day or so and, and see, see what you think? But I mean, if you've got that, then I have no concerns about learning Apache Spark. Mm -hmm. If you work with Flink, if you work with probably even like Apache Beam and some of those others, mm -hmm. you'll, Hive, you'll get the idea. I something think. like that. If you work with Hive, then I'd have no problem having you query with Spark SQL. It's going to be almost yeah. the same syntax most right. of the time. Um, I don't know if I'd hire you to build my data platform without digging deeper on how much you understand what's really happening though, right? Because you can right. write Hive and run it the same way you can write Spark SQL and run it. Yeah. And magically I get data back. I don't know. If it takes an hour, <laughs> I just sit there and wait an hour and don't bother <laughs> questioning it. Um, I think we've, we've uh, found that people who question why something takes the amount of time it takes um, have been really good at learning these new systems because they're going to go dig a little bit further and understand the why. Mm -hmm. You don't have to understand the, like, that much about how CPU and RAM works. You really don't. But knowing that it's going to use some RAM, it's going to right. use some CPU, right. uh, let me figure out which one it's using. Let me figure out if there's a bunch of cores sitting there unused, if there's a bunch of memory sitting there unused. Uh, you don't need to ask those questions day one or even before you get the job, but it, at some point, the question's going to come up. Right. Do we need a bigger cluster? And you're going to have to answer it. Or you may not, but eventually, if you're progressing, you'll have to answer that question. And you might have to do a little research, which is cool, but you're going to have to dig in sometime. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, a, like, if you're new to SQL, uh, you will just write a select statement to do a thing. Um, 
but as you get more deeper into it, you'll understand that there are indexes on tables and you'll want to use, you'll want to take advantage of those depending on the type of data you're trying mm -hmm. to get back. Or if you're joining two tables, having, um, having those join conditions be set up properly to be more efficient, you know, and it, you don't get to that point until you look at an execution plan and understand, oh God, like that's not, <laughs> that's never going to work. Or, uh, you know, many to many type relationships. Like if you don't understand why it's taken so long, it could be because there's some fundamental thing here that is wrong about what yeah. you're actually trying to do. Um, and that's, I think, what you're getting at, yeah. right? So it's, yeah, it's a similar approach. So, um, so last question, uh, how can people find you, learn more, connect with you? Right, so uh, you can find my website, dustinvanoy.com, and there's a lot of content there, plus the little Twitter and LinkedIn buttons to find sure. me. Um, I'm Dustin Vanoy on Twitter. Uh, I think I'm dvanoy on GitHub, but you'll, you'll find that through these other means. And if you search YouTube for Dustin Vanoy, you'll see my channel, which has some stuff. I'm going to keep adding to that. But you'll also find some conference talks that everything's been recorded for the last two years. So some of these same topics I actually do demos of beyond just talking about them. I do demos of those in Azure Databricks. And so you can kind of see what that looks like and go grab the notebook and try it for yourself if you like. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, man. Thanks yeah. uh, for coming. Great Appreciate to see it. you again. And uh, we'll have you back on here for the next time I'm trying to understand something new. <laughs> Sounds good. Anytime, man. <laughs> All right. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview there with Dustin Vannoy. And if you want to learn more, we'll put links to all the things that he mentioned down below. Again, please like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice to let everyone else out there know how good this content is and how much it's helping you. So that's it for this one, guys. Thanks for watching yet again, and I'll see you back here next time.